I think we're all, especially in, you know, the current political climate, uh, we're all pretty bummed out about this dark timeline the world seems to be on. And there's just such an organic way to use punk rock to be like, hey, things are happening that are really horrible and intense and it pisses us off. And it's like this great delivery system for political unrest. You know, there's an honesty to it. It feels very earnest. And it's such a world that is not, I mean, obviously there have been the big quote unquote punk bands throughout the millennia, but I don't think anybody ever went into it like, this is how we're going to totally make money. I think people went into it with a message that they wanted to share and maybe feeling a little bit like outcasts. And it seemed like a great way to find like-minded people. Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Feather-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Apology for the radio silence. I know my last episode promised an interview with writer Jody Lynn Nye, and that's part of why this episode is so late. We've been having some problems finding a time that works for both of us, and so while it is still in progress, and I do promise that in the future, you'll note by the today's title that that's not today's episode. Alex DeVore is a culture editor for the Santa Fe Reporter, which is sort of how we know each other. We have a mutual arts writer friend and friended each other on Facebook. His father is a former screenwriter, Christopher DeVore, and is the main reason Alex went into writing. Additionally, Alex is the guitarist for the band Fibber. He's played music for over 20 years, but Fibber is relatively new creation who, to quote the Bandcamp page, quote, please fast punk rock music to be mad to. Finally, he's a passionate gamer and defender of the medium as an art form. Alex, thanks for geeking out with me. Well, thanks for having me. Let's start first with your cultural arts writing. In the email you sent me with your, kind of your background, like I, like I said in the intro, you kind of say that your father's kind of the re- reason why you got into that. I'm always interested in origin stories. So let's kind of talk a little bit about that. How did that get kind of into your blood? Oh, sure. So it's important to note that I am now and have always been terrible at school. Um So I did not do very well in school. So at a certain point, my parents pulled me out of school and homeschooled me, which is probably why I'm such a weirdo. But they were not particularly qualified to do a lot of that. So um, it mostly wound up being a lot of my dad making me read Shakespeare or watching classic films and then writing essays again and again and again. To Kill a Mockingbird, for example, he made me watch when I was about nine years old. Maybe a little too young to like fully analyze that, but he sure made me analyze that until he was satisfied. And then when I did eventually get back into real school, he was just such like a stalwart editor and critic as well. He was kind. Well, he was cruel but fair, I guess you could say. So... Between a combination of that and kind of watching him write constantly, I just thought it seemed like the coolest thing in the world to do. So I did it for years and years and years, just kind of on my own, journaling, short stories, terrible, terrible poetry, and um, eventually wound up doing some freelance journalism, which I did for many years in a lot of different places, which then ultimately led to the job that I'm in now. 
So, you know, usually when you hear stories like that, it can go one of two ways. It can go the way you went, where you love it, but there's also the opposite where you end up hating the, the, the thing you do because it's so forced on you. Can you go into a little bit about why you think you went the one way versus the other? What made you decide to love it instead of hate it? Sure. It's funny you say that. I was just telling a friend of mine that, like, if I ever had kids, for whatever reason, my worst fear with it, they would, like, hate music and art and be like, I'm going to be a divorce lawyer and <laughs> you can't stop me. So I, I'm just such a sucker for narrative, whether that is in the nonfiction or journalism realm or whether it's in the, the fiction realm. And uh, I was such a ravenous reader as a kid. And well, I wish I could say I still am. It's kind of hard when you write all the time at the end of the day to want to sit down and keep going with words. I just thought it was such a cool thing to be able to tell stories, especially in a town like Santa Fe, New Mexico, where, I mean, a lot of people who have never been here, or even people who are new to here have this vision of the town as, you know, oh, it's this wonderful melting pot of cultures all harmoniously singing together. And we definitely do have that to a certain degree, but there's also a lot of division here, as there is anywhere else. So I guess being in a position to tell stories that are my own, but also to tell stories that are other people's, maybe even people who can't tell their own stories seemed wildly appealing to me. And on top of that, I am like, I will talk about books and art and film and gaming and music and everything all day. I will be at work writing for 12, 14 hours, no problem. But like, put me in a restaurant, which is like work I used to do. And I want to kill myself after like 90 minutes of that. So it seemed better than ditch digging. And uh, it's fun. Honestly. So have you always lived in, in Santa Fe? No, I'm from Los Angeles, actually. So what led you to there? Honestly, uh, I did not want to come here. But the Northridge earthquake happened when I was a kid. And my mom was like, that's it. And we <laughs> moved like within six months. Okay, so it was still when you were um, fairly young. <laughs> I'd like to say I became a person here. I understand. More into your origin as a writer. Um, obviously, you said you've been playing with it since you know you were little, but tell me a little bit more about what made you decide that this uh, and know that this was what you wanted to do for a living versus, quote unquote, just a hobby, which I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. You know, most of my life, I was one of these people who, as I looked around at the world and I saw, you know, friends and family or people I knew kind of going into college and, you know, having this plan, there was always this terrifying, like, oh my God, nothing sounds right for me kind of thing gnawing at me. And I've, I've done a lot of different kinds of work, but when I kind of started doing the arts journalism. I mean, it was a lucky break. Let me, I want to be very clear about that. I used to host like a pub trivia thing and the editor of the Santa Fe reporter at the time, like 12, 10, 12 years ago, uh, happened to come to that. And part of the pub quiz was that we had to write a blog like about the night. And I just kind of was like really kind of goofy and shit talky in my blog. And, um, she read this and thought it was funny for whatever reason and said, Hey, do you know anything about music? And I said, why? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I'm a longtime musician, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of like 
fell into it in a very lucky way. But once I had been doing it for about six months, about a year, I just was like, oh my God, this is my thing. It just felt so natural. And I don't want to say easy because obviously, you know, writing is very hard and it can be very tedious and difficult, but it just clicked for me. I understood what I needed to do. Um, and I also kind of, I tried to be like a sponge, you know, I, that first editor would just tear my stuff apart, which I kind of loved because it was a, a crash course in what to do and what not to do, etc. But I mean, frankly, it was just like this glorious gelling of my life where it just made so much sense that that was what I could do. And I felt lucky then. And geez, I feel lucky now, too. Well, and that's that's a great segue because we also the part of the main reason you're here is to talk about your your music and your band. So that leads into to that aspect. Um, you know, you said you're a, a lifelong musician. Uh, tell me uh, again, back to the origin story. Tell me about that first time that you were like, hey, I want to try this thing called music. <laughs> so uh, I'm from L.A., like I said. And when I was a kid, there's, you know, the suburb of L.A., Pasadena and there's Old Town Pasadena, which now is very, you know, chic and all the the shops and the bougie and whatever. But when I was a kid, it was like there was a movie theater down there and a couple of bars, the end. So we'd gone to see a movie and we walked past a pawn shop and I'm about seven or eight years old. And looking through the window of the pawn shop, I saw an electric guitar and it was like this bolt of lightning <laughs> where I was like, I want that thing. So I want, I got to touch that thing. That was also around the time that, um, the Nirvana album, Nevermind had come out and the song smells like teen spirit just like kicked my ass so hard. I like immediately fell in love with rock and roll in that moment. And then seeing an electric guitar in real life was this whole other thing. Um, so I begged my parents, I really want a guitar and they would not get, me one like they kind of for years they were like here's like a birthday card shaped like a guitar and here's you know a watch that's shaped like a guitar and they thought this was really funny i think it's horrible honestly like if your kid's like i want to do something don't be like let me make fun of you for five years real quick first yeah so eventually there was this guitar laying around like an old acoustic guitar that had belonged to my grandfather like a nylon like a spanish uh kind of classical guitar and they got that fixed up and kind of gave me that. It was not the same as an electric guitar, but I think they didn't think I would do it. Like really, they think of this vision of me saying like, I couldn't get good at it right away, so I gave it up, which I guess I get. And it also gave me this very like screw you attitude when I finally did get my hands on a guitar that I just like refused to stop with it until I got good at it. And good is such a relative term i've been playing for almost 30 years and i'm like a fine guitar player but uh yeah the combo of seeing nirvana and the way that a fender electric guitar looks like was all it took for me really so what would you say i mean nirvana obviously is a big influence but would you say that that i mean and your fibber is is fast punk uh is that your primary interest or do you have you know a more eclectic taste oh boy um you know how people say, like, I like everything except country, which I think is weird because classic country rules. But uh, I'm like, I like everything except reggae. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, like, playing with a band, I just want to, like, rock and have fun. 
I don't, none of us are under the impression that like, we're going to make it. Especially in today's day and age. Yeah. Like what even is it anymore? So if I'm playing with other people, just as long as it's something that feels passionate, whether that's like angry, loud punk rock or like super sad, nobody loves me songs. I'm kind of a sucker for those. And uh, growing up, there was like such a wide spectrum of punk from like the more mainstreamy Nirvana stuff to the angrier political dead Kennedys kind of stuff to like the emo movement by which I do not mean my chemical romance, no matter what anyone says. I mean, bands like, Get Up Kids and Mineral and The Promise Ring and these bands that were huge when I was a teenager and now people look at me like I'm nuts when I mention them. But to make a long story short, in a band, yeah, give me anything passionate that's, you know, not reggae. And um, if it's solo, you know, like an acoustic guitar and just me, I'll sing like, you know, finger picky, pretty melodic, like, oh, I'm so sad kind of songs. Mm -hmm. Sort of catharsis, if that makes sense. So what specifically about fast punk uh, drew you and the, the rest of Fibber? Why that versus the other types of music that are out there? Sure. You know, I think we're all, especially in, you know, the current political climate, we're all pretty bummed out about this dark timeline the world seems to be on. And there's just such an organic way to use punk rock to be like, hey, things are happening that are really horrible and intense and it pisses us off and it's like this great delivery system for political unrest you know you're never gonna hear like a pop song that's like "Ooh, girl i love you and also fuck trump but (laughs) you're gonna hear punk songs that you know say that and there's an honesty to it that i'm really drawn to maybe like an earnesty an earnestness earnesty earnest Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels very earnest. And it's such a world that is not... I mean, obviously there have been the big quote-unquote punk bands throughout the millennia, but I don't think anybody ever went into it like, this is how we're going to totally make money. I think people went into it with a message that they wanted to share and maybe feeling a little bit like outcasts and through that punk rock and it's sort of offshoot like zines, for example, or um, the artistry of it, even just flyer making kind of was an art unto itself. It seemed like a great way to find like-minded people as well. Just to harp on the Nirvana example, a couple years back, I went to the Experience Music Project in Seattle, Washington, and they had this huge uh, Nirvana exhibit. It might still be up even, I I don't know. But going through this exhibit with this band that I admired so much, I kind of turned this corner and they had this huge wall of flyers from shows they had played when they were like a no-name band. And it was exactly the same kind of look as the flyers that we had made when we were dumb teenagers just making dumb music. And it felt like this emotional, like I was part of something. You know, I never met those people, never played anywhere near them, but here they were still doing like a very similar thing to what I was doing. And when you're like, kind of a pudgy weirdo kid who you know homeschooled and hated reggae it was hard to find your people and punk rock was really that way that i did that 
Well, and, and in my introduction, I'd say that, that Fibber is relatively new. Based off of my memory in Facebook, I want to say within the last year or so that you started this? Yeah, honestly, you okay. know, what is the date today? Like the 27th or something? Our first show was just about a year ago. And we had been playing together for a long time before that, like kind of trying to zero in on a sound. And when we finally, we were like, oh, we're going to be really complicated. We're going to be really melodic and we're going to be full of harmonies. And when we finally were like, look, four chords played really fast. It just really came together and we were able to write really quickly. So I would say we debuted a year ago, but all told maybe like two and a half years that we've been playing together. You're the guitarist. Do you, do you help write, write the lyrics as well or in music? Um, it's, I do not write the lyrics. I am pretty much just the guitar guy. We have another guitar guy named Dave Finn Zimmer, who just is this like idea machine. He'll come in and be like, Hey, I wrote like 10 guitar riffs, you guys. And he'll show them to you. And then I kind of start building on that. And then the drummer will build on that. Our singer kind of does the lyrics and he's similarly just like this nonstop idea machine of just kind of like furious but thoughtful and honestly rather like poetic lyrics at times i think they're a little headier than you might expect in punk rock in terms of origin why join a group versus do your own thing you know i wish i could say something about like we just had i had this grand idea and the only way to do it was multiple instruments i just was like looking for friends honestly (laughs) it's so hard when as you get older to make new friends and when you meet new people who are like, I like a lot of the same bands as you. Do you want to get noisy together? I think you say, yes, I do. Hi, I'm Aaron Guzzo. I'm the composer of Tesla the Musical, and I'm geeking out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. You can find me on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon at that handle. For as little as $1 a month, you can support Geek Out, get the audio files a little bit sooner than the rest of the world, and receive behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. Want to support me but can't afford a monthly commitment? I also now have a coffee account at that handle. You can also support me by rating and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see links to my social media and all the places you can listen to this podcast over at my website, angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interview with Alex DeVore. This isn't related, but it is. Uh, since you're a music journalist, I do have to ask, in terms of groups, what makes a group a group? How many times can someone change out? Uh, I'm thinking of like Van Halen, for example. You know, How many people can you take out of a group and replace before it's no longer that group, would you say? I think that's a really good question. Uh, it's like you'll see flyers that are like, Leonard Skinner's coming, and you're like, didn't? Leonard, aren't they dead? That was a, a thing. Or you hear about, like, uh, I want to say it was Tears for Fears, who they grew to hate each other, and then each one was touring separately but called Tears for Fears. And for me, it would be weird to just, like, casually replace people and call it the same thing. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I guess at a certain point it becomes a job, and that sounds kind of horrible. But ultimately, if I'm not enjoying time with people who I like, what am I even doing it for? I think that's kind of like a, that's a, the word I want is like it's, like, it's like a high class like demand, I think, to be like, well, I get to be enjoying my music with my friends all the time. That's a good question. 
it makes me feel weird when I see bands where it's like just one original member left. It makes me sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, my thought is, is Queen. Is, is Queen still Queen without Freddie Mercury? Because he was such a vital part of that group. Yeah. <laughs> no. Honestly, no. Like, Brian, they're all incredible musicians otherwise, right? But he, Mercury was obviously like the thing in that band, I would say. Anyway, that that's kind of where, like I said, since you're a music journalist, that's been a question I've always wondered. It's like, how many people does a band have to lose and replace before they should start calling themselves something else? <laughs> yeah. Back to, since you are a music journalist, this is for people who, uh, not only yourself, but people in the audience who may not know. Before I came to LA, I spent a good 20 years in the Kansas City area with an all-volunteer performing arts magazine called Casey Stage, where I wrote and edited a good chunk of stuff, and I also reviewed a lot of stuff. But I was also heavily involved in the community theater scene myself. And I always found it interesting, I guess is the best word, to try and, you know, be able to keep those connections yet still maintain that journalism separation. And so since you are a musician, but you do cover music, do you feel that that's a, a constant thing on your brain or do you have any kind of way to separate the, that out? That's a, I think that's a good question too. I think that's actually how... I came to be on the show here was that I was whining online about how when you write about art, but you also do art, it's sad because you know, you'll never like, I'll never appear in my own paper. Like my own newspaper couldn't be like, boy, this guy who works here sure is great. And if they said I was awful, I think that would just make me sad. But, um, you know, Santa Fe is a small town and it's something I've struggled with for the majority of my career is this idea that people have here that because we live in the same town, it is somehow my job to support the community. And when I can support the community, I think that's great. And, you know, obviously I'm part of this community and I want to support it as I can as a person. I think journalistically speaking, it would be kind of weird to just automatically say everything was wonderful or worth everybody's time if, you know, I didn't actually think that. Additionally, since there, I mean, we have a lot of live music here, but it's, you know, there's like definitely a core group of people who are making a lot of the music in the, in the different scenes. And it is kind of hard to, you know, be buddy buddy with these people, but then also, you know, write about them at the same time. I'm sure you came up against this as well, where sometimes, you know, I'll think, oh, I shouldn't write about this thing because I know that person, but then I know everybody. So what am I supposed to do at a certain point? I try to tell people like, I don't owe you anything. My job is not to make sure that you do really well. You know, you put your best foot forward. Uh, I will do the best that I can. So before we go into kind of the final stretch, um, was there anything specific that you wanted to talk about that we haven't yet? Oh boy, you know, I always... I ask people that too. Is there something you wish I'd asked that I didn't? And they always say, no, I can't think of anything. And then usually I think like, what an idiot. And now I'm like, oh no, I understand. <laughs> well, I definitely want to delve into gaming a little bit because that's obviously a geeky thing. And, and you would talk about how you're a passionate uh, gamer and defender of the um, 
medium as an art form. And I'm, I'm a gamer myself, although I'm uh, not as much into it now that things are as expensive as they are. <laughs> I know that in your, the thing that you sent me via email, you said that you're uh, platform uh, agnostic, uh, but at the same time, again, each platform is, you know, 500 bucks. Do you have, what do you have specifically that you currently play on? Well, uh, just to be clear, when I when I said I was platform agnostic, I really meant as far as like a delivery mechanism for storytelling goes. Like if I can get a good story, whether that's a book, a movie, somebody explaining something to me in a video game, in any way, I'm I'm totally there for it. As far as gaming stuff goes, I'm definitely an Xbox guy and a PlayStation guy, and I have a Switch, although I don't like that one as much as the other ones. We bought a Switch for Christmas last year, not this past year, but 2018. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Uh, uh, Untitled Goose Game is awesome. <laughs> My brother keeps telling me, and I keep telling him, like, yeah, I'm going to get it. And then I, I haven't yet, but it, it looks awesome. Well, it's back in the days when you still had floppy disks for, for games mm-hmm. on computer. I had this parody Star Wars game called Star Warped. And it was a bunch of mini games that were kind of parody of the current Star Wars games that were out there. But one of the games was called Whack an Ewok, which it was a picture of the forest and there was a log over there and an Ewok would run back and forth and you had a pole and the whole point was to knock the Ewok off the pole. And they had this delightful scream if you did it. And on the entire time you were being egged on by a really bad James Earl Jones impression. <laughs> and I found that so stress reducing playing that game. Whenever I was feeling extraordinarily stressed, I would go whack. And I love Ewoks. Let me let me clarify that. You're I love the Ewoks. But yeah, it was just, I found it so stress relaxing to be able to just get my frustrations out by doing something like that. And the Guntitled Goose game reminds me of that, that you just, it really helps get a lot of my frustrations out by being this bastard goose. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm glad to hear you say that because for me, I mean, when I was a kid, gaming was like absolutely forbidden in my house. So my brother and I, we had to like, you know, play at friends' houses and, it was interesting because my mom was like, it's all you'll care about. Meanwhile, everybody I knew who grew up with games like could not care less about them at this point. But I've only really been into them like for 10 years, and I'm pretty obsessed with them. But a lot of it is I have like a pretty severe case of anxiety and depression, and it, this is something that I deal with a lot where I'll just be you know, humming a tune, minding my own business, and my brain says, hey, man, you are probably going to die right now. And I go into this horrible kind of episodes one thing that gaming has done for me is allow me this kind of escapism where if it's for like an hour or more i can kind of get out of myself and focus on this other thing now i find that there's a lot of different you know storytelling platforms that provide that for me and i am not one of these people who says like well it's just escapism like that's a bad thing like i i think as humans we so strongly crave these kind of altered states of consciousness. I think that's why we like reading. I think that's why we consume so much entertainment slash drugs. But, you know, I think it was Will Wheaton who once said, you know, the internet arguably is its own video game. Facebook is really no different when you get right down to it. Mm -hmm. I guess I just don't see 
how it's a bad thing to engage actively with things on a screen rather than sit there and passively stare at it. Like uh, reality shows, you know, a lot of people I know are like, Ooh, I love reality shows. It's just, it's so cheesy and I know it's bad, but you know, I so love it. And then in the same breath, we'll be like, games are for losers who live in their mother's basements. Well, you know, no, that's false. I think, I think everybody to some extent plays games and I don't really feel shame for it. But a lot of people do try to make you feel that shame for it. Are you familiar with uh, Jane McGonigal, the author? Can you give, can you use it in a sentence? She wrote Reality is Broken. It's all about kind of gamification, the positive sides of, the, of gamification. Uh, she had a, I want to say it's a brain tumor, but it may have just been something more minor than that. But she created a game that basically cured herself. <laughs> Whoa. No, but I love the sound of this. So yeah, you should check her out. She's done a couple of TED Talks too, so you can find her on that if you're if you're more of a listener rather than a reader. But she, yeah, she has a lot of great ideas of how to use gamification in positive ways. I read that book in like two days, and uh, I follow her on Twitter, and she's on my list. She's on my list as as a, a fellow cultural journalist. You know the list. She's awesome. on my list of people I would love to interview one of these days, just because she's got some fascinating ideas. A friend of mine, his grandmother started showing like early uh, warning signs of Alzheimer's and her doctor told her to play Tetris. Like he prescribed Tetris to her. And, you know, I've never met the woman, but from everything that I've heard, it's like totally turned it around. And I think that is just so cool. And frankly, it's really sharpened my memory in the last 10 years getting into gaming and my critical thinking Spatial reasoning, I mean, some of them, yes, are just straight up killing simulators, but the idea that we can quickly pick up this set of rules and mechanics and then operate within a world while using these things and smaller bits are continually introduced and we have to adapt and learn, I I don't see why that's bad. I think it was a marketing, it was such a marketing, like, this is like a strictly a 10-year-old boy thing. And that's who's going to be playing these. But I mean, you know, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking like Amy Henning, who was the woman at Naughty Dog who created the Uncharted series. And I know she's working on a Star Wars property now. Or some of these, you know, women composers. I understand that there are kind of newer trans developers who are kind of working on some cool projects out there. Honestly, now that I said that out loud, I'm like, I'm going to research that when we're done with this. Well, I mean, yeah, don't even get me started about how uh, women have always been gamers and that they've always been uh, ignored uh, with that. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, we're getting close to the end of our thing. We already asked if there was anything else you wanted to talk about. Before I ask my final question, where can people find you uh, on the internet if they want to learn more about you? Oh, sure. Well, I do the Twitter and I do the Instagram, and I'm at Team Alex on both of those platforms. The Santa Fe Reporter, which is the alt-weekly newspaper where I'm the culture editor, we're online at sfreporter.com. We're also on like Twitter and Instagram as SF Reporter, I believe. But honestly, if you Google Santa Fe Reporter, you'll find us. And then uh, Fibber, the band that I'm in, we're actually we're releasing our full album on February 14th. But we have a couple of songs up now on Bandcamp. That's fibber.bandcamp.com. Fibber is in, you know, like liar, but we're very honest people. Fibber.bandcamp.com. 
And for those of you who uh, don't know this, these will all be linked in my show notes. As you know, I try and ask everybody I interview, uh, what are you currently geeking about and why? Sure. Well, I don't want to only harp on games, but I am really geeking out on this developer Remedy, Remedy Games. A little background, they created the Max Payne series, which Rockstar Games, the Grand Theft Auto people have now, and they do a great job, don't get me wrong, but um, it was kind of like this really big turning point for action games at the time. But what I specifically like about these people is, as of 10 years ago, they started with this game, Alan Wake, which everybody kind of likes to describe as Stephen King by way of Twin Peaks, where a novelist is kind of trapped in the Pacific Northwest, and he keeps finding manuscript pages to this book that he's written but they all sound like horrifying things are about to happen. And then they do. And he's searching for his lost wife, but it's like a very literary story that has very cool gaming mechanics. So as they evolve, the next big game they do is called quantum break, which was cool because it was time travel. And I love thinking about like, well, if I killed my grandfather in the past, then I never could have traveled to the past. And then would I blow a hole in the universe? Like, I think that's fun to think about. But what was cool about that game is you would kind of play these sections of it, and then there were these 30-minute live-action episodes that filled out the rest of the story in between the kind of sections of the game. And the president and head writer guy at this company, Remedy, he's named Sam Lake, and he's been very open about, like, the storytelling possibilities of the medium. And uh, the game that they most recently put out was called Control. And I'm sure if there's gamers listening to this, they're like, well, duh, Alex, I know Control. But in case people don't, this woman kind of unwittingly becomes the director of this thing called the Federal Bureau of Control. And it's like a clandestine government agency. And they investigate, you know, creepy, scary, unexplainable, supernatural phenomena. And, you know, a bunch of scary stuff happens therein but the whole time it's just this just well-crafted intriguing mystery story unfolding where every minute you're like oh man what's gonna happen next how's she gonna get out of this and it's very very cool uh thank you for geeking out with me thanks for geeking out with me Jeez. and now it's time for angie geeks out Welcome to The Good Place, the podcast. I'm Mark Evan Jackson. I play Sean. I've often raved about the television show The Good Place. Heck, I even wrote a review of season one and part of season two for the website F-Bomb. As you probably know, the show recently ended its fourth season run, and hands down, it was one of the best television shows from beginning to end. The ending was damn near perfect as a way to end the show, being predictable in all the right ways, where we see these characters leave our lives in ways that stay true to themselves and to the story the writers were telling. Back in 2018, while waiting for season three, NBC released an official podcast to go along with the show. It's hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who plays the demon Sean and, if you read my review, one of the reasons I started watching the show. Each episode, he has guests from the cast and crew, and they would do a part recap of the episode and part how did it get made kind of thing. Now, I'm already a big fan of Jackson, but his hosting of this podcast is marvelous. Despite not having a background in this kind of thing outside of his acting work, Jackson is an excellent interviewer and host. He mentions at one point that one of his influences is Terry Gross, and it shows. His enthusiasm for the show and for the way television is made is apparent, 
and he approaches the topic with an honest joy that makes the episodes fly past. With The Good Place over, they recently started a new similar podcast for Brooklyn Nine-Nine that I haven't delved into yet, but am fully confident is just as good. You can find The Good Place, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on NBC's website. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Alex DeVore for letting me interview him. Thanks also to Aaron Guzzo for the mid-show plug. You can hear his interview about his musical based on the life of Nikola Tesla in episode 38. I've got a few interviews in the process for my next episode, but nothing concrete yet, so stay tuned. Until next time, stay geeky! Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Bitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. More information about the podcast is available on my website, angiefsutton.com.